Changing How We Elect Presidents, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The Democrats may not have a competitive presidential primary in 2024, but they're dramatically shaking up the system, dislodging Iowa and New Hampshire to enshrine a new calendar. How much difference will this make? Does it pretend a new era of a reformed process, or will the pre-voting invisible primaries still rule? This week, I talked to Josh Putnam of Frontloading HQ about the presidential nomination process and the reforms. He's a practicing political scientist who watches the rules changes closer than anyone, finding a complicated dance between national parties, state parties, candidates, and state laws. He also understands how the rules fit into the dynamics that govern who wins nominations and who gains and loses power among party factions. For those gearing up for 2024, this is a must-listen conversation. So let's start with the uh, big changes uh, potentially coming uh, on the Democratic side of the presidential nominating uh, process. Uh, What's happening? How much is a dumb deal? And uh, what are the most uh, important factors in which of the changes come to fruition? So um, I think the the big ticket item is is that the the Democrats this time around have have opted to um, reshuffle and and, uh, insert some new states into the what they call the pre-window period uh, of the, the primary calendar. So functionally, it's going to be during the month of, of February um, in, in 2024. So uh, you, rather than the what has become the traditional start of Iowa, then New Hampshire, then uh, Nevada, then South Carolina, shifted to South Carolina moving up to the beginning, um, Nevada and uh, New Hampshire sharing a day uh, three days later, um, Georgia's primary coming in a week after that, and then Michigan's primary ending that pre-window period on, on uh, February 27th. And, and you know, the, the Rules and Bylaws Committee adopted that back in December. Um, the DNC just adopted that this past weekend. So, uh, you know, in terms of, of what parts of this are, are done deal and what, which parts aren't and what's going to come to fruition and what's not, um, we're gonna have to see. Um, I, I um, took note of the fact that that Rules and Bylaws Committee co-chair Jim Roosevelt said during the the meeting in which they extended waivers uh, or consideration of waivers for Georgia and and New Hampshire uh, a week and a half ago that that he noted that you know we're we're actually ahead of schedule from where we usually are and and that that didn't quite jibe with with my feeling on things because again the Democrats have have kind of reshuffled not only their calendar but how they've done things i mean usually the pre-calendar and these waivers are done um, and this is true for both parties to the extent each has waivers but certainly having the rules in place by the end of the summer uh, in the midterm election year has been the protocol throughout most of the the post-reform era so from 1972 onward um, that democrats broke with that um, this cycle is noteworthy um, uh, but and it made sense because uh, you know to to make a, a, a firm decision on or a, a smart shrewd decision on which states they were putting in there, um, they needed to know how the midterms are going to come out and and where state legislative state governmental control was going to end up. Um, but anyway, Roosevelt noted that that you know we're we're ahead of schedule. He said in terms of where the Democrats are, and that makes sense from the perspective of they've got. Assurances from South Carolina's Democratic Party, who gets to set the date that South Carolina is going to be on February 3rd. 
they've got assurances from Nevada Democrats that they're not going to do anything to um, change what's already on the books as a, a, a February 6th primary there. And the same thing is true now for, for Michigan. Now, there's some issues with implementation there, but they're already, um, uh, based on a, a, a change made there, to, to occupy that February 27th um, a spot on the calendar. Now, that does leave, uh, while that uh, cements in place three-fifths of that, um, there are two other component parts and maybe one other that we can add in there that, that aren't uh, locked. Um, I just mentioned New Hampshire and Georgia, both of which received um, extensions in the consideration of, of the waivers for them to appear in the early calendar. Um, both have uh, systems where the Secretary of State in each uh, uh, state gets to select what date um, the presidential primary falls on. Um, and in both cases, they are Republicans. Um, Georgia is a little easier case, I suppose, um, to deal with. Um, the February 13th um, spot on the calendar is not one that, that Democrats in the state of Georgia nor nationally are going to be able to talk them into uh, moving to. Um, the Secretary of State's office in Georgia said, look, you know, uh, we've, we've got some criteria here. We don't want to split these primaries up. We don't want to have one for uh, Republicans, one for Democrats. Um, it costs taxpayers too much. Um, and number two, we don't want to cost either party um, national um, delegates um, to, to their national conventions. Um, Democrats can perhaps, national Democrats can perhaps wedge Georgia into uh, an earlier position. It just won't be that February 13th position. The Republican rules allow states to go as early as March 1st. That precedes the, the Super Tuesday uh, date that, that um, most states kind of gravitate towards. Um, uh, by a few days in this cycle. Um, so Georgia could maybe go, you know, the Saturday after the Michigan primary, um, the Saturday before Super Tuesday. But that's really the only position where they can make that work. The, the position they've outlined for Georgia is not going to work. New Hampshire is similar in that um, the Secretary of State makes the decision, um, but they also have in place a state law that says they have to be seven days or more earlier than any other similar contest. A similar contest tends to mean primary and not caucus, but um, uh, South Carolina obviously has a primary this go around. Um, so, I, you know, look, without getting too far down in the weeds on this, um, New Hampshire Democrats have signaled that they're going to follow the state law and that they're going to follow the decision that the Secretary of State, David Scanlon, makes there. Um, which will likely be before uh, uh, the South Carolina primary sometime in, in mid-January. Now that, you know, opens the door to penalties and all that, and I think that's a saga that's going to take probably 18 months to play out um, for Democrats to, to play that, uh, for national Democrats to, to play that to its logical end and actually penalize New Hampshire. They're going to have to um, probably follow through with, with not seating a delegation not one chosen by the primary um, anyway um, at the, the National Convention next summer. The one addition I'd make to that um, is, is that part of the calendar plan is to, to kick um, Iowa's caucuses out of the, the early window lineup altogether. They, too, have a state law there. Um, signals are similar there that they're going to follow that state law. Um, the thing is, both parties have, have violated that law in the past with, with no penalty. Um, so again, 
they're going to have an argument before both Iowa and New Hampshire will have an argument before the the uh, Democratic Rules and Bylaws Committee. Um, they won't probably be successful in arguing that they should retain their uh, first positions. And again, that gets back into this this idea of of the National Party having to follow through with their threats to uh, penalize them if they're going to make this stick. So this seems uh, strange that we're having all this action on the Democratic side uh, when it looks like Joe Biden is going to run for re-election um, and maybe only generate some some token opposition, if any. Uh, so is that is this going to be all for naught and then we're going to redo it all um, uh, in anticipation of the 2028 um, contest? Um, or is this likely to kind of in, entrench things, at least in degrading Iowa and New Hampshire's uh, role? Um, and I guess what is what is the role of, of having this process in the midst of an election where it might not matter? Is that why it's <laughs> why it's successful is because this is a Biden driven process when when nobody's kind of out there to see the immediate loss. Right. I mean, you know, we, we should note right off the bat that that in most cases, um, an incumbent president running for, for renomination reelection tends to keep the rules that got him or her nominated in the first place, um, which means there may be some subtle rules changes here and there, but there aren't wholesale changes to the primary calendar order or what have you. So that's different this time around. Um, but the Biden folks and, and the DNC, for that matter, um, can can make this push because the stakes are, are pretty low this time around. Um, but it, it means that if if the Biden um, White House and, and the, the Democratic National Committee want this to stick, that they're going to have to um, be consistent in, in how they treat states um, like Iowa and New Hampshire that, that break these rules. Because I really, from from my perspective, I view this as, as kind of a trial run um, for, for 2028. If they can make an example of Iowa and New Hampshire, should they uh, go rogue and break the rules and uh, the Democratic rules in, in the 2024 cycle, they stand a little better chance of, of heading off um, some thornier issues um, should they opt to, to attempt to break the rules again in, in 2028, should they, they carry over. And again, uh, you know, th- there's already a resolution that's been adopted by the Rules and Bylaws Committee that says they're going to look at these states again or, the, or, or this process again um, in, in 2026 for, um, with, with 2028 in mind. Um, so I think they're serious about keeping um, this, this idea of a rotation um, in, in play. Um, but again, um, depending on, on the outcome of, of the 2024 election and, and so on and so forth, um, that's going to have a bearing on, on what decisions they make down the road and, and who those decision makers are going to be. Because um, while there will be some, some carryover f- uh, on some of the membership, there will be some changes uh, on the Rules and Bylaws Committee between now and then as well. And it may be enough to tip the balance uh, uh, in, in favor of a, a change of direction. Um, but as of right now, uh, you know, listening to the membership of the Rules and Bylaws Committee, they're, they're serious about this idea that, that they want to have an adaptive, process that identifies states that that um, are, are good for the party on the whole um, with the goals of diversity and helping them um, better plan and streamline planning for general election and so on and so forth. So, I mean, if you had to guess, is it's going to be the, the states that win this time will, will possibly get another chance? Uh, is this going to be a rotation process or is this, uh, you know, going to sort of start over from scratch with new criteria? 
I, you know, I, I think anything's possible. Um, but, but uh, you know, if, if this process has shown us anything, it's that these traditions, the status quo rules are, are difficult to change, right? So if you put South Carolina in that first position now, well, they may want that come uh, four years down the road, um, whether or not the, the National Party wants to keep them in that position. Um, so, I mean, you know, again, we're talking about a moving target here. Um, it makes sense now, given that the stakes are kind of low. Um, it may get harder to do this when facing a, a competitive, competitive environment in, in 2028 or ahead. So what about the Republicans? Um, historically, I know that a lot of change has originated in the Democratic Party, and then the Republicans have eventually gone gone along uh, with it um, through some of these mechanisms involving the, the state-driven um, decisions. Um, but, but what do we know about kind of when the Republicans um, follow the Democratic process or adapt alongside the Democratic process versus go their own way? And why does it seem like there's just nothing uh, changing that calendar on the Republican side. Yeah, um, I mean, historically speaking, right, I mean, the, the, the reason we talk about the, the post-reform era that, that started during the 72 cycle was that, that Democrats kind of pressed pause and, uh, after the 68 election and, and uh, looked at reforming the process um, uh, entirely to bring uh, uh, rank-and-file voters, members of the party, into um, the, the process, into the determination of who the nominee was going to be in a more direct way. Um, the Democratic Party at the time benefited from the fact that they had so much control of, of state governments across the country. Um, the law changes that were made um, in, in state legislature, state governments during that period not only affected Democrats in subsequent cycles, but Republicans as well. And that's what brought the Republicans into the process somewhat reluctantly in 76 and, and beyond with their own, own spin on, on how this, this process would um, evolve and adapt over, over time. Um, one of those adaptations has been that, that Republicans um, have tended to make their changes at the convention, right? So for 2024, um, for example, they, they would have made um, decisions on what the rules would be for that cycle during the 2020 convention without the ability to, to make changes. That's historically the way things have been. Now, back in, uh, let's see, I guess after the 2008 cycle, they added uh, what's uh, known now as Rule 12, which allows them the latitude to say, well, look, we can make amendments to certain rules that regard the, the primary process up to um, you know, the summer of the midterm year, if we so choose, um, which has gave, given them a little more latitude to make some changes um, uh, along the way as well. Um, but again, historically, there's been this kind of give and take between where both parties have been. Um, I think... We saw kind of a golden era of, of both Democrats and Republicans working together, um, uh, kind of in a window between you know, 2004 to 2016-ish, um, when um, Democrats aligned their calendar uh, for, for 2004 with the Republican process in that they both allowed for earlier, in this case, February contests to take place rather than starting um with the window at the beginning of March, as is the case now. But both um, after the, the, the chaos of, of the calendar in 2008, um, kind of took a step back from that, saw common uh, purpose 
starting the process a little later, that it wasn't butting up against the, the, the beginning of the year. There was some kind of informal coordination between rules folks, if not coordination, then certainly conversations were had that were taken back um, to, to the national parties and, and may have, and, and from the looks of it, did affect um, the, the rules that came out of that. But, um, you know, there was some coordination on saying, look, the process should begin in um, uh, March for most states. Um, and and that, that was a, a steady state between, um, despite some rule breakers being in there in 2012, but for 2012, 2016, um, there was some alignment there, even 2020 for that matter. And, and, and since then, we've, we've begun to see diverging paths between what the Democrats want to do and what the Republicans want to do um, in terms of the calendar. Um, Democrats obviously have pinpointed diversity uh, issues with, with Iowa and New Hampshire and have wanted to address that. Um, Republicans are, are less animated by, by those issues and are, have been fine with the process that um, that, that early calendar uh, lineup of Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, and then Nevada in their process have, have uh, produced over the years. There has been some grumbling about maybe changing that up. There were some impl- implementation issues with Nevada back in, in both 08 and, and 2012. Um, so there was some chatter about replacing Nevada at that time, but nothing's ever come of that. Um, but again, I get that, that speaks to, you know, just how decentralized this process is in general and how the national parties try to adapt to um, that decentralization to, to come up with rules that are um, as beneficial as possible for them uh, for, for an upcoming cycle. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the Republicans have been in this position of basically since the 2016 cycle of carrying over their same set of rules, not just for the calendar, but for their entire delegate selection process uh, from from one cycle to the next. So we talk about the uh, misalignment between the two parties nationally, um, but you've also mentioned several instances in which the national parties are dependent on uh, state uh, parties and state governments. Um, So talk a little bit about what we know from the history uh, there. How often is there kind of a unified cross-party effort at a state level to, you know, move earlier kind of against the national parties versus, you know, the party, the state parties split with their national parties, um, you know, versus some of these other circumstances. Uh, is this, is this new, uh, that we're uh, dependent on, you know, a couple of officials in, in, this, uh, party in the other party, um, to, to reform the process or does that go back a long way? So, uh, you know, uh, again, it speaks to kind of the, the decentralized nature of this whole process. National parties just have only so much control over this. Um, you know, we hear about the, the potential for uh, New Hampshire to cause problems on the Democratic this, uh, side this time uh, around uh, because they're wanting to hew to that traditional first position that they've had. Um, but we, we hear about their, uh, these instances because they're really rare, right? Um, it's not often that we see states break the rules. Um, you know, arguably, Florida made the decision that they did in 2007 to move their 2008 primary uh, into January because from their vantage point and from a lot of other state capitals, uh, the, the vantage point was that, you know, a lot of states are moving to Super Tuesday. If we follow suit, then we're just going to get lost in the shuffle. If we want to make a difference, then we don't need to go first. 
we need to kind of fit into a slot that, that's toward the, the, the beginning of the process, but before this onslaught of, of contests. Um, you know, that rationale carried over not only from 2008 when Florida and Michigan did it, but also 2012 when, again, Florida, Michigan, and that time Arizona decided to jump into to earlier territory against the National Party rules. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we should say that, that the vast, vast majority of states are, are complying with the rules. Um, and that's uh, in, in terms of, of both parties and, and uh, partisans uh, uh, on the state governmental level are, are making decisions that are, are consistent with those rules. Um, now, you know, have we seen efforts to uh, cross-partisan uh, efforts, as you, you uh, noted, to, to move up to earlier positions? Yeah, uh, in, in both cases, though, the Florida legislature was, was uh, controlled by Republicans um, in 2007. Democrats uh, participated and, and supported that move. I don't think all of them did, but a, a, a number of them did. And that, that hurt them later on in their discussions with uh, the, the Rules and Bylaws Committee on the Democratic side in, in their effort to avoid penalties. Um, they complained that they weren't able to make any changes now that the, the primary had moved um, and, and were resistant to do so. Um, but but um, again, they had taken part in that decision in the first place. Similarly, Michigan in that cycle um, uh, had a, a Democratic governor, and I'm fairly certain that one of the uh, chambers of the legislature was controlled by Democrats that cycle. Regardless, it was a bipartisan effort to push that, that primary up. Um, but oftentimes, I mean, again, since then, um, we, we haven't really seen um, as much uh, bipartisan effort to, to, to move uh, primaries up. Um, I mean, the recent kind of quick passage of, of the, the um, primary law or the new primary bill in Michigan um, kind of demonstrated that. Um, I wondered, given the context of a, a Republican National Committee chair election, whether or not they'd be engaged with um, state legislators, uh, Republican state legislators in Michigan, um, during a, a kind of simultaneous process to, to move the primary there, um, and wondered whether or not um, we'd see um, Republican uh, legislators in Michigan oppose uh, the move of the primary or not. Um, and, and it, it, as it turned out, um, they, they did, right? This, this turned out to have been a, a Democratic-led effort, and, and Democrats uh, made the move on, on their own. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if push comes to shove and states are trying to make these moves, um, uh, sometimes we see some, some bipartisan efforts. Other times it's, it's just a function of, well, this is a Republican cycle moving up um, ahead of us here that's going to be competitive. And that gives uh, Republican actors on the state level a little bit more impetus to, to shift around their contest to a, a more advantageous position. So there seems to be an assumption in a lot of this that the, that first is best or, or second is second best, that, that we want to be kind of as early in the process as possible. But the other um, irony of this change is that uh, arguably by far the most valuable state last time was South Carolina uh, because its position was right before all those other states uh, voted um, and the, their momentum carried over, um, whereas that wasn't true of the first uh, two, two states. Um, so is... Uh, you know, what do we know about um, how valuable these positions are and if it's really true that that first is better? Well, I mean, first, we should say that that this will be a, a, a well, 
hopefully, if it all uh, works out the way Democrats have uh, uh, planned, that this will be kind of the first test of that hypothesis anyway, right? Um, we've never had a, a, a cycle where Iowa and New Hampshire have not gone first. Um, so we, we don't know what a process looks like um, where a South Carolina goes first or insert state. Um, that's that's number one. Um, but, you know, um, regardless of that, yeah, I mean, there's there's something to the fact that that South Carolina was was seemingly in retrospect anyway, well positioned to to serve as kind of a, a slingshot into a Super Tuesday in 2020 that was not completely dominated by Southern states, but it had a certain Southern flavor to it. So similar sorts of voters that were voting in the South Carolina primary were going to be voting in um, uh, contests across the South um, just a few days after that. Um, you know, it, it, it really kind of depends on, on what the goals are. Um, if, if, if the goal at the state level is, is to be first, like Iowa and New Hampshire want to be, it's not necessarily to be determinative. It's to um, influence the process, as as the New Hampshire Democratic Party chair said in a recent interview with with Politica. Right? Um, I think more to the point, they're after the uh, the attention, whether it's the candidate attention, media attention, or or economic attention that they get from from that. Um, that they don't want to give that up. Um, so yeah, um, you know it's 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 a sequential process. The further down the line, the further we uh, we get into that sequence, the more determinative um, uh, contests are, are likely to be. And we get into a kind of a, a certain sweet spot there, a few contests in where states are better positioned to do that than they are at the initial outset of of the new primary calendar. So it sounds very dependent on uh, how the media and candidates uh, react uh, to the process. Uh, we haven't had um, cycles where Iowa and New Hampshire don't go first, but we have had cycles where the media and candidates decide to ignore Iowa because there's an Iowa candidate or decide to try to make other states uh, more influential. Um, so how is that likely to evolve with with this change, especially since we might see a cycle where the Republicans, where the real contest is, aren't um, aren't changing? and so are we really going to get a test of, you know, whether it matters if South Carolina goes first, if all the attention is just Trump and DeSantis and still in Iowa and New Hampshire? Right, right. Um, you know, again, as I said, kind of uh, at the outset of this conversation, um, you know, if Biden runs for, for renomination as expected, then a lot of this is kind of a trial run of, of this system for Democrats with, with 2028 in mind, that we're not going to get a real firm test of, of the, the nature of these changes until the Democrats have a, a competitive cycle. Um, but yeah, where most of the attention is going to be is going to be on the Republican process that's going to look a lot like the traditional process that starts in Iowa uh, and New Hampshire and so on and so forth. Um, and and we're, we're, even though Trump is the only announced candidate so far, much of the activity reflects the, the order of the contest so far. I mean, it wasn't a mistake that Trump was in New Hampshire and South Carolina the other weekend. Um, it's not a mistake that, that candidates are lining up trips to Iowa. Nikki Haley is supposed to announce in the next few days. And, and where is she going? Well, up to Iowa really quickly. Um, the one kind of missing link in all this and all the planning anyway is that it only extends to those first three contests. It's Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina that Nevada 
despite having that fourth position um, in the Republican order. We haven't really seen any of the activities extend to, to, to that deep into the calendar yet. And again, as we get deeper into the invisible primary, we'll start to see uh, campaigns take shape and, and the planning begin. And, and we'll not only see continued activity um, on the part of candidates and, and media in reaction to them in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, but we'll start to hear about how they're, you know, planning for Nevada's process, whichever r route it takes with respect to primary caucus on the Republican side, um, but also in terms of planning for, for um, a process that maybe goes beyond that, um, visits and spending in, in those Super Tuesday states and so on and so forth. Well, if this is so dependent on what the um, candidates and the media decide, though, is there going to be any learning that this is more of a national process now? After all, we, you're now going through these uh, basically a year of pre-primary debates and, and coverage. Um, and so, you know, part of the role of these early states is that everyone thought they would provide these early signals. And now we have all of these other early signals. Um, so is do you see any changes like that that are just kind of so, slowly nationalizing the process uh, to to make these early states less important? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a gradual nationalization of this process over time anyway, um, uh, despite the fact that, that there's not been a lot of learning with respect to, to how the, the national parties um, uh, approach it. Um, certainly, states are never going to acknowledge that it's a national process because they want the attention on uh, uh, their contests, their issues, and, 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 and the like. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we have seen some learning with respect to, to how um, uh, the, the national parties approach this. Over the course of the last few cycles, we've seen both parties adopt rules that deal with the, the primary process. Uh, I'm not sorry, not the primary process. Um, the parties have adapted with rules that, that um, uh, deal with the, the debates process, which was a, a new wrinkle in, in 2016 on the Republican side. And, and we saw uh, Democrats uh, push that along with um, uh, more severe thresholds for candidates to be able to participate in, in 2020's process. And Republicans are adopting that as well. That I see as a nationalized move um, at, at attempting to, uh, I mean, again, I don't know that the parties are trying to winnow uh, candidates, but it has the effect of, of winnowing the field, um, at least who is uh, um, likely to do well, who's on top heading in and so on and so forth. Um, so that's one area where we've seen some, some um, augmentation on the part of the national parties over time um, with respect to their learning. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about kind of in primary season um, uh, sequence, but, but the invisible primary is a part of that sequence too. Um, you know, campaigns are, are building out now um, at this point in time, and they'll continue to do that. Um, and, and some candidates will make the decision that, We've made this effort. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. We were going to announce that we're going to run, but, but we're not going to. I mean, some folks have, I mean, I don't know how many stories I've read about Asa Hutchinson um, about to jump in, or um, he says it's going to be a couple months from now. It keeps being a couple months from now, every story I see on this. And, and maybe he opts to, to, to run, maybe not, but um, uh, we'll, we'll see on that. But, but yeah, um, this is an increasingly nationalized process with states that have some input in how it runs. And that's, that's how we kind of keep having this conversation about 
um, this back and forth between state-centered process and, and a nationalizing process. So we've also uh, seen some other uh, changes not having to do with uh, state order um, for the for the Democrats, especially downgrading caucuses um, and almost killing them off now. So um, wh- what what do you see as the biggest uh, other changes um, and, and what are we seeing in terms of the influence of, of those kinds of uh, changes? I know there were big fights uh, in both 2008 and 2016 over kind of the here's who attends caucuses, here's who attends primaries, um, things like that. Um, is that kind of thing mattering for the shape of the, the party or who wins? Um, I, we haven't really gotten a good test of that yet either, right? I mean, I think 2020, uh, we certainly saw a significant scale back of that. But I think it's something that we're going to need a few more cycles to see the extent to which um, and, you know a, a scale back from um, more caucuses to gosh, now we're down to, um, it was just Iowa, last go around in Nevada. Nevada's already switched to a, a, a primary on their side of the, or, uh, in, in out there as of now. Um, so yeah, you know, but I, you know, I flash back to the, the unity reform commission that, that came out of the, the 2016 democratic convention, um, that, that battle between, um, uh, Clinton and Sanders, um, and one of the, the planks, one of the areas they were, were uh, charged to look at was, uh, you know, the, the difference between primaries and caucuses. Um, again, you kind of alluded to this in, in, in your question, is that, you know, there, we've got some participation differences there. Turnout's higher for, for a primary, a state-run primary, than it is for, for a caucus. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's been kind of where the focus has been, uh, or, or the, the majority uh, focus has been in the Democratic Party over the last couple of cycles, which is 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 tamping down on uh, what they view as voter suppression and allowing for um, increased participation in in their process. Um, but I, I still think back to a time that Unity Reform Commission, when they were looking at this, when when someone who was on the the Sanders campaign or part of that orbit in 2016, Larry Cohen who was a vice chair of, of the, the Unity Reform Commission. He passionately defended caucuses. And I think where, where we don't really get a sense of, of the extent of this change is in um, organization, right? I think what is potentially lost in a, a, a movement away from caucuses is um, kind of that organizational aspect, right? Um, getting um, and energizing foot soldiers who are going to be with you um, for organizing for a, a general election. Um, he spoke about how, you know, that uh, Larry Cohen, that is, spoke about how, um, again, in that setting, you're able to more intimately engage with folks get them involved, not just to come out to the polls, but to um, help to organize other folks to come out. And, and, and that's, that's, that's what you get from a caucus that you're not going to see in, in a primary. Now, again, whether or not that is, is injurious to Democrats in future cycles, I think we're going to have to see. That's a question that we're going to have to have in, in the back of our minds as we view that process. So far, I don't think it's really harmed them in terms of organization. Um, uh, get out the vote drives and, and, and the like have, have proceeded uh, unabated <laughs> uh, from my vantage point uh, with, or with or without those things. And we should note, right, that the caucuses, though they may not be well attended, uh, are, are still a place where 
uh, delegates are, are on the whole being selected um, to, to participate um, in, in uh, conventions, county conventions, state conventions, and up to the, the, the national convention as well. They still have that organizational um, uh, aspect to them. Um, but that, that, that you may not see um, the energy that you got from a, a competitive um, caucus where delegates are being allocated as well. So that makes me think we should do some 101. So give me, uh, and we're assuming some knowledge here. So uh, yeah, yeah. Give, give me just give me just sort of the 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 broad picture review that you know these contests are about apportioning delegates affiliated with candidates. Um, you know the 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 final official vote is actually at the convention and sort of how how we got to to this point. Right, right. So, uh, you know, the, the, the quick primer on this is, is there's a delegate selection process, there's a delegate allocation process. Uh, for the most part, you know, on the Democratic side, we're talking about primaries now. The results in those primaries determine the delegate slots that are allocated to particular candidates based on those results. Um, the delegate selection process happens in a variety of ways, but, but more often than not, it happens in a kind of concurrent uh, caucus convention process where, again, we already know which candidate has how many delegate slots, but the selection process determines the individuals and who they're aligned with that fit into those slots that go to a, a county convention, a state convention, and ultimately to the national convention. And just because we did have this uh, review in 2016 where people were switching uh, delegates from the initial contests and stuff, just talk a little bit about, you know, it, to the extent to which this is, these are kind of, these allocations are, are permanent versus versus not. Well, so on the Democratic side, they're, they're, they're locked in, right? Um, delegate candidates um, are, are typically lined up by the campaigns. The more organized ones are, are, are prepared for this than, than those who are, are less organized. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, delegates are, are pledged to particular candidates. They're selected uh, with respect to those, those pledges. There's a little bit more latitude on the Republican side um, in that they don't have that pledged process. Um, state parties can um, uh, determine whether or not they want to bind delegates if they hold a preference vote, whether it's at a precinct caucus in Iowa or a primary like New Hampshire, um, then they have to, um, they're bound to allocate delegate slots to candidates based on those results, those uh, subsequent delegate um, candidates or delegates that, the, the people who subsequently fill those positions are, are locked into that preference, whether or not they're aligned with a candidate or not. The reason we saw some some issues there in 2016 on the Republican side was that there were a few states, Colorado, uh, North Dakota, among them that had um, precinct caucuses, but no preference vote in there. So there was no mechanism to bind um, delegate slots to particular candidates. It was just basically a selection process. It was the onus was on campaigns and candidates to, to make sure that their candidates for delegate slots um, actually got through to subsequent rounds. So political scientists um, have tended to, to brush a lot of this uh, to, to the side uh, in talking about presidential nominations, especially in the party decides era, uh, where it was assumed that um, pre-primary endorsements uh, were the most important factor and tended to um, 
tended to, to kind of matter independent of or before the voters started voting. And to the extent we had a debate about that, it was often about the, the other pre-primary factors like uh, polls, money and media attention um, that, that would matter before anybody before the early states. So uh, and certainly uh, kind of in the in the winnowing process, uh, that is not just in who wins, but um, in, in which candidates are left to vote by the time voters uh, see them. So what's the kind of current state of our knowledge on uh, determinants of, of presidential nominations and the role of these early states versus all this stuff that happens beforehand? Well, you know, from my perspective, it's it's all a part of, of that sequence, right? I mean, again, you go back to kind of the, I mentioned this before, this idea of, of kind of primary season sequence. That's as part of this, but but the other the other preceding part of this is, is that invisible primary. That's a part of the sequence as well. The inputs that come out of that that process affect what happens in, in those early contests. Um so yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 akin to to putting a puzzle together, right? I mean, I think most people, if they sit down to do a puzzle, they're going to do the border pieces first, right, to try and get that uh, outline in place. But that's not the only option to do that. Um, if your strategy is a little bit different, you maybe come to that picture of identifying who the nominee is uh, a little bit different. But but again, that speaks to the sequence of all this mattering. Um, you know, again, the, the, the party decides uh, thesis and, and the literature that's, that's uh, developed around that, the, the discussions that are developed around that, I think still pretty well hold on the Democratic side, right? Um, and I don't know that they don't apply on the Republican side. It's just that we've, we've seen a reticence on the part of, of leaders to, to weigh in with um, uh, which candidates they're behind in particular cycles, right? And, and we're already seeing evidence of that for, for this 2024 cycle on the Republican side, is that, you know, we'll let the voters decide on, on how that's going to go. So it's not really the party deciding in that case, it's the party not deciding or deferring to uh, the voters for some input on that um, uh, but before we get to that. So, I mean, I, that's where I see the state of things right now with respect to, to, to the party deciding or not deciding or, or what have you. But it all comes back to, you know, the invisible primary is a process that starts um, at the very latest, the, the, the day after the preceding presidential election. And there's certainly evidence that it starts before that. Um, in terms of, of candidates kind of positioning themselves for future runs and so on and so forth. But every little bit of, of activity that happens between um, or from that point um, to the point at which Iowa kicks things off, if it's to do so, and it will on the Republican side in 2024, um, is, is going to have an input or, or a say in how the, the process comes out in the end. It's all kind of determinative based on, on the steps that come before it. So we do uh, still have this process where uh, a fit, where it, it if you explained the rules uh, to, to students uh, or um, or the public, um, it, it would seem like we were headed uh, for for problems. That is, uh, you know, or a contested convention every year. We ha- we need a majority, but um, you know, we start with a, a lot more candidates and no one, you know, polling at at fifty percent. Um, so, is it true that that's just sort of a built-in um, problem that we'll eventually face <laughs> in the system, or um, you know, is it? do all of these uh, processes, whether it's the early states or, or the invisible primary process, 
guarantee that um, you know we, we we will get down to a number of candidates that the that the parties can make a decision. From my perspective, it's a long process, right? I just I just talked about a, an invisible primary that starts the day after the preceding presidential election, right? Um, that's a long process. Some of us are, are engaged from from beginning to end on that. Others check in when Iowa and New Hampshire start voting, or maybe a little earlier when these debates start happening in the primaries, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's a long time and it's an exhaustive process, right? Um, and if you're a casual onlooker who, who wants to be engaged or involved in the process, at some point you just want it to be over, right? Um, and and that, that's, that's the benefit, I think, of a long and sequential process is that despite the fact that it looks like it's going to be chaotic every time, and, and 2016 on the Republican side is a great example of this, right? Um, Trump got to a majority of delegates by the end of, of primary season, but there were still questions about um, his uh, viability as a, a nominee and actually pulling the, the, the lever for him at the convention and all the rest of that. They ultimately decided to bind the delegates and lock in Trump as a nominee and so on and so forth. Um, but if you were going to have a contested convention, 2016 on the Republican side was, was going to be it. Um, I, I reserve the right to be wrong on that. Um, but just the nature of the process is one that that gradually moves things towards uh, a front runner emerging, um, an alternative to that uh, uh, front runner emerging that allows somebody to to ultimately get to to fifty percent or close enough to it to be nominated at the convention. So the uh, presidential primary process has also been uh, blamed for the the rise of of Trump, uh, and this goes back uh, a long way. Um, uh, my advisor uh, Nelson Polsby uh, f- uh, famously sort of um, sort of predicted that changes in the reform process would um, lead to an increase in importance of celebrity uh, of of media and a decrease in importance of kind of the traditional uh, party elites. Um, on the other hand, you know the same kinds of processes on the Democratic side haven't necessarily led to the same uh, kinds of of outcomes, um, and. There's lots of other factors, of course, that that led to, to Trump's rise, but kind of address that the extent to which this this presidential primary process, um, including its reform, uh, actually opened the way uh, for a candidate like Trump to gain power in the U.S. Right, right. So, uh, you know, uh, there's a balance here, right? Um, you know, parties wanted to, uh, well, the Democratic Party wanted to open things up to, to rank and file voters. I think the Republicans came reluctantly into that as, as the post-reform era evolved. But um, that has opened the door to, uh, you know, again, the, the literature that popped out of that was, was not only Polsby, but folks who focused on, you know, a candidate-centered um, a view of the process, um, and so on and so forth. It does gravitate towards uh, celebrity and name recognition and, and so on and so forth. Um, but again, so much of this, I think, um, pushes back. I mean, you can change the rules all you want to to, to, to primary season. Um, the, the big change was opening it up to, to, to voters, um, uh, opening it up more to voters in the first place. All the subsequent rules changes have been within that system and 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 the like, right? Um, so once you make that change, um, and it's one that that you know, either party is going to have a difficult time of of pulling back from. 
but again, it, it hinges on a, a party kind of staying together on, on what's important. And, and we've seen that, that um, Democrats have been willing, uh, Democratic elites, I should say, have been willing to, to let a process play out, but also to, to, to weigh in ahead of time in an effort to, to winnow things. And, and in, this, in the case of 2024, to select states that are, are um, good at picking um, nominees who can win. Um, but, but, you know, again, with, a, with, you know, 2016 on the Republican side as the exception, the process has been pretty good at spitting out candidates who are, uh, well equipped, uh, or well enough equipped to, to deal with the, the issues that are, um, intend, uh, attendant to the, the presidency. So we're in a weird circumstance where, um, in some ways we seem to be hurtling towards a, uh, Trump Biden rematch in, uh, 2024, or at least that, that potential, even though, uh, voters, uh, say they don't want, uh, that rematch. And I've, I've been in rooms of party officials on both sides where it's clear that, uh, lots, lots of people don't, uh, want that, um, you know, and almost no one wants both. <laughs> so how did, how, how are we um, in a circumstance where it's sort of so hard to move off of um, the kind of uh, obvious, um, uh, I guess, front runners or, or continuing on, on the same path uh, versus shifting, even if, if people profess to want something different? Right. Um, again, this gets back to, to how strong uh, the, the, the national parties are, are uh, actually are or are trying to be in, in all of this. Right. Um, I, I've, I've sat in several Democratic meetings over the years where, you know, uh, particularly in, in uh, incumbent reelect years where they're, they're setting the rules and, and they continually come back to this mantra of our goal is to renominate and reelect the president. Um, and, and that's why they tend to not rock the boat and change rules and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, there's a disconnect, I think, this time. I mean, I think what we saw the other weekend when, when um, the, the DNC adopted the calendar rules for 2024 was a party that was very much lined up behind the president. So there's a, a disconnect there. Um, whether that changes when Biden actually says he's going to uh, uh, seek uh, renomination and reelection, uh, we'll we'll see whether or not Democrats begin to to line up um, in in greater numbers behind him. But as of now, for Democrats, they they at least have a, a an opening, right? There's a possibility that someone else could could jump in there, um, and that may live on past when when Biden throws his hat in the ring, um, or as expected, throws his hat in the ring. Um, but, but we'll see, uh, the Republican side, again, it's, it's kind of a continuation of, of, of what we've seen since 2016. It's, it's, it's a reticence to, to, um, deal with the, the elephant in the room more or less, right. Which is, you know, um, there's, there's feelings against Trump, but there's no effort to really coordinate against him. Um, or if there are efforts, they're disjointed and um, are, are difficult to, to coordinate um, above a kind of a micro scale uh, in, in the process. Um, so, uh, you know, I, you see the, the beginnings of coordination uh, uh, on, uh, behind this notion of, of DeSantis, but I don't think we've seen a real test of that yet. And my approach to, to 2024, I think, is, is the same as it was in 2016. In 2016, I was kind of fond of saying, look, this is Jeb Bush's nomination until it's not. And it, it very slowly 
um, moved away from him and then very quickly uh, was, was apparent that he was not going to be the nominee. We may see the same thing uh, this, this time around um, with respect to the Republican process and Trump. Um, but again, uh, there's, there's some institutional advantages that Trump has as a former president, having had input on officials that are in power on the state level that insulate him in a way that was not true of, of Jeb Bush and, and I guess the Bush dynasty, if you want to call it that, um, uh, heading into 2016. So, Josh, how did you get into this uh, mess and repeatedly coming back to it? Uh, what, what was interesting when you when you started and, and how much have have those uh, interests changed as you've as you follow this uh, each time? Gosh, you know, I, the, the, the story I've told over over the years is that, you know, I, at, at some point uh, in, in the first semester of, of my grad school experience, I had to choose a, a topic to write a, a, a research design on. Um, and my only inkling at the time was, well, I'm interested in presidential elections among a lot of things, but I really like this presidential election stuff. A lot of that stemmed from some stuff that I did as an undergraduate in a class that George Rabinowitz taught at the University of North Carolina. But uh, anyway, um, I, the notion of, of the movement of primaries was, was enticing to me at the time. Um, uh, Bill Mayer and Andy Bush had written a book, The Front-Loading Problem, um, that I thought asked some good questions that had not had some hypothesis, uh, hypotheses fully tested. Um, so that's kind of where I, I got involved in, in this, uh, in the rules, broadly speaking, was, was just in looking at calendar movement, trying to explain why it was that some states were moving around from cycle to cycle and other states, you know, I, I grew up in North Carolina. North Carolina traditionally had a First Tuesday after the first Monday in, in uh, uh, May primary and, and rarely moved from that. Uh, why was North Carolina different from, uh, say, Georgia, where I was in, in grad school at the time? Well, Georgia moved around. And, and it, the, the best performing variable in that that explained it um, was that um, North Carolina had a, a consolidated primary. That there were costs involved with with moving around um, that a state like Georgia, who uh, very early in the post-reform era said, look, we've got a late primary that comes after um, uh, the a late primary for, for all offices that comes um, after the, the conventions. So we've got to create this new and separate presidential primary that can fit into a window that, that feeds delegates into a national convention. They incurred those startup costs early um, and, and reaped the benefits later on when they had the ability to kind of shift around to, to earlier or later dates, depending on the cycle. Um, uh, the way that developed from a, a, a topic for a master's thesis or uh, basically a chapter in my dissertation um, to dissertation research and, and something broader through the, the blog that I've run for um, gosh, 15, 16 years now, um, uh, is, is that, you know, I, I took that question, like I said, I wanted to, to test some hypotheses that I don't think had been rigorously quantitatively tested to that point and actually do that. Um, and, and I did that in my dissertation. And, and when I went on the job market, um, I got some feedback that like, this is a great question, a great series of questions, but you know, just I got this from a this feedback from a comparativist who said, you know, it, it really kind of screams for some case studies. Um, 
And that came at a time when, you know, I talked about the calendar evolution on the blog and so on and so forth. But I was looking for a direction for not only that, but for my research moving forward. And um, that kind of case study outlook was a, a good thing to for, for me to latch on to, um, I, I think, um, not only for my research, but for the, the blog itself. Right. Um, it allowed me to take those big questions that I treated kind of in an overarching way um, uh, with the, the system in mind to looking at how these decisions get made on a real micro level, right? Um, in a way that I don't think I had um, uh, prior to that. Um, so that, that's how things have evolved. That got me into discussions of not only the calendar, but also the delegate selection and, and allocation rules um, that, that both parties are, are using. Um, that opened the door to not only further research questions, but also opportunities to have these discussions with, with uh, practitioners um, who are involved in, in campaigns, right? I mean, the blog got picked up by the Romney campaign in, in uh, 2012 when I was talking about delegates in a real, uh, you know, antiseptic way and, and uh, you know, nonpartisan way and all that. But, but they used the, the information that I was putting up about, you know, the particular inability of his opposition to be able to catch him in, in the delegate count. Um, but also led to opportunities for me to consult with, um, I, I, you know, I advised briefly the, the Biden campaign in 2020 and, and um, on, on their delegate process. And, and um, you know, that's kind of where I am now. A long evolutionary tale, if you will. <laughs> and so, yes, you have worked not only uh, as a political scientist researcher, but um, as a practitioner, um, uh, looking at the rules from their perspective and uh, and in the media as well, trying to kind of explain the process to the public. So uh, talk a little bit about, you know, your experiences there and what it says about kind of our, our different views. Are there things that practitioners know that the media and political scientists don't uh, and, and vice versa? Um, you know, what, what can what should um, practitioners take from the political science world uh, and, and what should we bring back in? Right. So, I mean, you know, obviously the goals are different, right? Um, you know, the bottom line for a practitioner is, look, they're, they're wanting to come up with the, the best way for, for their candidate or their party to win, right? Um, and, and it, it can be a micro focus at times, right? You can, you know, lose sight of the forest for the trees. Um, I think from a scholarly standpoint, we kind of approach it from, from the opposite angle that there's a lot of this minutia that's in there, but we're trying to fit it in together to tell a, a, a broader picture of, of trends of change and, and so on and so forth, um, from a, you know, party perspective or, or what have you, um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's where the disconnect, I think, often um, takes place is just, you know, the goals are different, but, but also our approaches are different. So, I mean, I, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, I, I think my um, evolution is kind of a microcosm of all this, right? I mean, I think I t uh, kind of looked at it from this broad perspective to begin with. Um, with some little anecdotes here and there that could fit into, to, to, you know, again, the hypotheses that I was um, testing. Um, but, you know, you, you can lose sight sometimes of, of some of the minutia in that. Um, and and that's, that's where both sides, I, I think, I don't know that one side does things better or worse, right? It's just that, that as I said, the, the goals are different. We should be mindful of, of that when, when um, having these conversations between both camps, right? Um, is that, that, hey, from a political science standpoint, from a scholarly standpoint, you know, 
think about the bigger picture. So, I mean, you know, a conversation that I think uh, Jonathan Bernstein and I have had on, on Twitter, you know, just broadly speaking about the changes to the calendar is that one thing that's being lost right now is, is the stability of the system, right? If you've got a stable system of events on a calendar, that allows candidates and parties to learn for starters over time, but also to adapt to um, what they've learned in past cycles um, as, as they go along. Um, so, you know, in the rush for the Democratic Party, this go around to, to try and make the, the to prioritize diversity in battleground states and so on and so forth. They've to some extent lost sight of, of that. I mean, I think I, I approached this cycle in particular um, with with the mindset that I'll believe Iowa and New Hampshire get thrown out of this when when it actually happens. Well, it's 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 actually happened. They've they've cast that vote, right? Um, but but at the same time, right? Um, I I don't know that um, they necessarily the party that has looked at this from from that perspective of of the stability lost. Because I think the democratic process in particular has gotten to a point where, you know, you know what you're getting out of Iowa and New Hampshire at this point. It may be mismatched with what the party's goals are, but how we interpret the results in those contests is such that that we tend to discount those results. I mean, the reason everybody was waiting for South Carolina last time was because Iowa and New Hampshire didn't necessarily match up with where the party was. So... In, in some respects, South Carolina, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, what difference does it make that South Carolina is going to be first now? Well, you know, more or less, I think some people still viewed South Carolina as kind of the first contest in the Democratic process last time. Uh, so anything you want to tout now about what's next or what you're going to be up to uh, in this cycle? Well, uh, uh, it'll be more of the same uh, for me. Um, to the extent I'm able, I'll, I'll keep... Um, rattling uh, uh, my saber, I guess, about uh, what's, what's going on in this process, what people are, are missing um, or misinterpreting, uh, whether it's the media or the parties or what have you. Um, but also, I'm, I'm kind of at a stage in the cycle where I'm, I'm um, sitting back and, and fielding offers. I'm kind of in between gigs right now, um, so open to, to fielding offers from, from uh, candidates should they reach out. Um, but but um, yeah. Like I said, it's just kind of more of the same of, of following what's what's um, uh, going on in this process as it evolves. Um, just because the Democrats voted the other weekend to settle on a calendar doesn't mean it's locked in, in uh, or set in stone. As we talked about earlier, that process will continue and, and the impact that that has on, on the subsequent contest will also continue to play out. Um, and we've also got a, a, a competitive Republican uh, process that's coming up as well. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, linked on our website. Do early primary states still pick presidents? Congressional primaries, how the parties fight insurgents? Do the parties prefer white male candidates? How donor opinion distorts American democracy? And how primary elections enable polarized amateurs? Thanks to Josh Putnam for joining me. Please check out Front Loading HQ and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.